Good morning. Wow, you filled up since last time I was here. This is great. Oh, before we dive in this morning, a couple of um, uh, things to look forward to that are coming up. Uh, next Sunday afternoon, which Dave told us is June 25th, uh, we're hosting the Glory of God Regional Prayer Gathering here at North River, 6.30 next Sunday night. If you've never come, it'll never be easier for you to be a part of this, but what, what do we do? For an hour and a half, we do a whole lot of worship and prayer. And it's a regional gathering. Will there be several other church groups that are with us? And I'd really love you to circle that on your calendar. Make an effort to come because we're hosting and it'll never be easier for you to get there and to try it out and to be a part of this. Love to have you do that. The other note that I want to give you is on the back of your notes, if you've got them, I had the thing about the Glory of God night. There's a reminder on there. But... Our leadership summit is coming up on August 3rd and 4th, and they gave us a little bit of a window that we've got from today through June 20th, which is Tuesday at midnight. They've dropped the price to $139. So if you would like to come to the, to the uh, leadership summit, global leadership summit that's happening all around the country, but will, will be a satellite host here, you've got 48 hours to sign up for that. I would really love to see a whole army of North River people who take advantage of this. Why? Because you'll be around top-notch world leaders in business and in Christian faith who will sharpen your acumen to go about what you do. And I think it's worth the two-day investment. I've been doing this for more than 25 years. I've gone every single year. We've built our vacations around it because we've determined after a couple times of going, this is something that we can't miss. At least that's true in my life, and I'd love for you to be a part of that. Again, it never gets easier because we're hosting it right here at North River. All right, our scripture this morning is Matthew 9, 35 to 38. I wonder if you would read this with me. Short enough, we can do this together. And here's the first day in a year we've got the whole church together, right? Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this wonderful Father's Day. Thank you for all the dads who are here. We celebrate the leadership they've given, the sacrifices they've made, the love they've invested. We recognize we've all made many mistakes, and we've gotten some things right, too. And we are here because we're, we continue to be sharpened by you. And what we long for is to be more like Jesus, every single one of us, dads and moms and kids and grandparents and those who are single. We are all uh, longing to learn a little bit more about Jesus and to become more like Jesus. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, wherever we are at on the journey, to take us a little bit farther today, to sand off a little more of the rough edges that we carry, to make us wiser, stronger, bolder, more faithful, more loving, kinder, and ready to take on every difficulty that this world can throw at us. Thank you for allowing us to be right here today in this moment. And so we glorify your name through the name of Jesus. Amen.
Well, it's really good to be back after a couple of weeks away. Uh, I want to tell you where I've been. Sue and I just took a trip along the Mediterranean, starting in Rome and ending in Barcelona. We were blessed to be able to visit several cities along the Mediterranean that have uh, a mix of old and new, or perhaps I should amend that by saying ancient and new. For instance, in Rome, we visited uh, Mamertine Prison, where both Peter and Paul were before they were executed for their faith. Mamertine Prison is in close proximity to the Colosseum, where for a few hundred years there were battles between gladiators and sometimes gladiators and animals or gladiators and Christians uh, in a, in some, to some degree were held as well. On one hand, this is an architectural marvel that still stands in all of its physical glory today. On the other hand, this site reveals a disregard for animal life and human life that is mind-boggling for us today. Some of these cities boasted grand churches like uh, this one that uh, we found in Marseille and ecclesiastical power and a sense of importance that was uh, attached to each of these cities. For instance, uh, this is quite a church complex for the city of Pisa. I think when, when they were devising all this, that building team really had vision. Um, Pisa is also a place that has the world's most famous bell tower next door. And I just had to put this one in here because <laughs> we did what every tourist does. And Sue did a good job of holding that up. Okay, there's a reason for showing you a few of my vacation photos. All this got me thinking about the role of power and politics throughout history, including in our time. In most of these grand cities that we went to, there were magnificent churches that were built that were largely built not just to the glory of God, but also to demonstrate the power that a group of people had at that point in time and why their church was going to be more grand than some other church edifice. But it all had to do with political and religious power that was tied together. And that, of course, raises a question about Jesus. How did Jesus regard or view politics in his day And what can we learn from Jesus that helps us in our day? Today marks the final installment of our He Gets Us series. At the beginning of this, we noted that there was a national ad campaign that drew attention during this year's Super Bowl, and we decided to turn this into a series of messages in order to take advantage of the curiosity that was garnered by the the ad campaign. And this also gave us a way to look at Jesus from a variety of different viewpoints that we don't normally take. So good morning and welcome back to North River. If you haven't been with us for a while, after being off for a couple of weeks, I'm really glad to see so many of my friends in the house today. And if you're watching with us online this week, I'm really glad that you are able to participate with us and that you're taking the time. Wherever you are today, we're glad that you are participating. And probably there are some people both here in the house and and online who are checking us out for the first time. We love that. To the folks that I met yesterday from Maine who told me they watch every week, really glad to see you again. Uh, Most importantly, I hope that you will think deeply about Jesus in some way because of the time we are spending together today and that you will move in his direction. If you think about Jesus... He always accepts us where we are. He loves us as we are, but he never leaves us where we started. He's always taking us in a direction. And the direction is that God is transforming his people to be more and more like Jesus. 
So I hope that the next time you see me, I'm a little bit changed. And the next time that I see you, you are different from who you are today. And that's part of the goal of every Sunday morning here. Let's dive in. How did Jesus regard politics? Here's the first observation. He was surrounded by political people. This was not something that was uh, never in his mind, but he was surrounded by political people. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 6. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles, Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. If you take a closer look at that list, you will notice that Jesus was surrounded by people from parties and movements. Just think about the disciples for a minute. One of his disciples was known as Simon the Zealot. That wasn't just a nickname. The Zealots were a party that wanted to bring about a radical revolution in Israel and throw out the Romans. Then there was Matthew, also known as Levi, who was a tax collector who worked for the Romans, hated by his own people, but worked for the Romans until Jesus met him. Peter seemed ready to fight the authorities at all times. Remember when Jesus was arrested and he pulls out that sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the men who was part of that gathering? And then there was Judas Iscariot, about whom there are many theories. We wonder, was he a zealot? Was he just a rogue agitator? Was he trying to provoke Jesus into bringing about his kingdom on Judas's time schedule? But Judas had his own political ideas. Then notice some of the other actors on the scene around Jesus. There were politically aligned religious groups. The Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, teachers of the law, and the Sanhedrin. There were politically empowered groups. King Herod, who was installed as the territorial tetrarch over the region of Judea. Herod was appointed by Caesar. Then we find three Roman centurions who are written about in the New Testament. One who was at the foot of the cross of Jesus and concluded that Jesus was the Son of God that day. And another who was commended by Jesus for faith that went beyond all the faith that he had seen in others in Israel. And there were politically employed people. So we meet Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, who becomes completely re be reformed in his behavior and gives back all that he's stolen to people. And there's Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. There were Jewish men who were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people. They were hated because they were often corrupt, but they were hated even more because they were considered to be compromisers. There's one common feature that we see in Jesus response toward all of these groups. He ministered to them. Sometimes Jesus ministered with them, and he was co-opted by none of them. Here's the first conclusion that I reach about Jesus. We do not need to have political power or universal agreement to promote the good news of the kingdom of God effectively in the church or in the world today. We can do that despite our political divisions and despite all the history that we have and the secondary things that may divide us as individuals if we are united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are 33 and a half years into an experiment that we can do that without uniformly taking sides in politics. Here's the second major discovery that I make about this topic. 
Jesus never bowed to their agendas. He was surrounded by all these politically uh, involved people, but he never bowed to their agendas. Matthew 22, verse 21, one verse. But it sums up a larger statement. Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. This statement was made during the final week of Jesus' public ministry. He had entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey on Sunday, fulfilling scripture about the Messiah King. He had then chased out the buyers and sellers in the temple on Monday, and he'd been teaching the crowds of people who had filled the temple in anticipation of, end of Passover week that was going to come the following weekend. Among his parables taught that week was the parable of the tenants. In this parable, the owner of a vineyard hires some tenants to take care of his vineyard, and when harvest season comes, the owner sends a servant or a representative to collect his share of the profits. But they are mistreated and abused, and some are even killed by the tenants as this goes on for some time. Finally, the owner sends his son, who comes with the owner's authority. The tenants figure out this is the heir, and they intentionally seize him and kill him, thinking, if we kill the heir, then the vineyard is ours. Jesus tells the parable, and then he asks the crowd what the owner will do when he comes back. And the, the, the crowd of people who are listening to him all answer that these folks will come to a wretched end and the vineyard will be given to others who will respect the owner's rights and his wishes. So Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118 about the cornerstone that was rejected. And he's signifying that I am the cornerstone that David was writing about all the way back in the era of the Psalms and yet the religious leaders are in the process of rejecting me. And he announces that the kingdom of God will be given to those who embrace the cornerstone and who produce fruit in their lives. This was what prompted the Pharisees and the Herodians to plot against Jesus together. Their plan was to catch him in a moral dilemma where he had to choose between honoring the laws of Caesar or honoring the laws of God. So Matthew openly tells us at the beginning of this section of Scripture that the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus in his own words. To pull this off, they enlisted the help of the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? The Herodians were Jewish people who were radically committed to the agenda of Herod the king. And so they're extremely political people. Not all that religious, but very, very political. So you have this very religious group and this very political group coming together with one goal to trap Jesus. They try to butter him up. They say, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity and you teach in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others. Can't you hear them sucking up to Jesus? And then comes the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Okay, you may not have read this for a while or maybe you've never even heard of this and you're wondering what is the deal here? What is this all about? There are many people in Jerusalem who resented the occupation by the Romans with their government and their soldiers and their heavy taxes. The taxes even found their way into the activities of religious life in the temple. So there was a temple tax that made its way all the way to Rome and to Caesar. And there were different people who took a little piece of that along the way and they got richer because of it. 
those in resentment wanted to reject Roman authority and they looked for an insurrectionist who would come and lead them in throwing off the Roman government. So the question they posed to Jesus that day had two traps built in. The first was, would Jesus acknowledge Rome as being above Jewish and Old Testament law? The second was, would Jesus speak in defiance of Rome and reject Roman authority, which would be seen as treasonous? You know what Jesus did. He evaded their trap with one brilliant answer. He called for the coin that was used in paying the tax. Somebody threw him a coin. He looked at it, and he says, whose face is on this coin? And the crowd answers, Caesar's face. And that led to his brilliant answer where he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In other words, Caesar can only take you so far. Honor the authorities in in life and Caesar can only ask for your money, but God wants your heart. God wants the deepest part of who you really are. Don't just give to Caesar, but make sure you give everything that God wants to him. This is just one example of how Jesus refused to be co-opted by the political agendas that were all around him. He never bowed to desires for him to lead a revolt or to lead a rebellion. He never took shortcuts to authority or shortcuts to recognition. He never joined their causes or their parties of the day. This does not mean that you and I can never join a political party, just in case you're thinking that I'm going there. But let's be clear. Jesus never did join any of them. If we choose to do so, we must exhibit great wisdom in not being co-opted by the agendas from either party that pull us away from our first loyalty to Christ and his kingdom. A couple of months ago, I quoted it to you this way. I'm not sure who authored this, but he said, we are not primarily from the party of the donkey or from the party of the elephant. We belong to the party of the lamb. Let's make sure our actions reflect the lamb. So here's the second conclusion that I reached with this. We emulate Jesus when we avoid allowing others to lead us to adopt their agendas and their habits and their patterns that may lead us away from looking like Jesus. But then here's the third discovery. Jesus called them to a different kingdom. And this is always what we have to remember. He calls us to a very different kind of kingdom that has already dawned with the coming of Jesus into this world, but we'll only see its fulfillment when he comes again. In the meantime, we serve and live by the values of, those kingdom, of that kingdom, and little by little, every day that we live out those values, we make our part of the world just a little bit more like what is coming. So we read these words from Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That is his political message. And healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Do you see what Jesus was doing here? In the midst of all of these politically minded people, Jesus was calling them to his kingdom. 
His kingdom is a kingdom of God's good news. This is good news of spiritual rescue and redemption. This is a place of compassion for the harassed and the helpless. And he calls for more disciples to bring in this spiritual harvest among a spiritually hungry world. That's what he calls every Christian into, to be a part of that harvest generation that looks at the world and sees not through the lenses of different pockets of people or or different isolated groups within our society, but begins to look at the world through the lens of the eyes of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom does not operate like the kingdoms of the world. He's not out to destroy everyone who disagrees with him today. He sees all these people who are spiritually lost and who need to be found. Watch this short clip that comes from the He Gets Us campaign. And notice the tagline at the end. Maybe I'm foolish, maybe I'm blind. Thinking I can see through this and see what's behind. Got no way to prove it, so maybe I'm lying. Take a look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see it clearer, or are you deceived? And what you believe? Cause I'm only human. Here's the problem we run into if we get caught in the traps that our world sets up for us. We end up hating people that Jesus loves and wants us to reach. And what he wants to do is send us into every pocket of society armed with the gospel, armed with his agenda, so that we can bring transformation wherever we go. I would imagine that some people I know are very unhappy about us sharing this message today. Here's the point, though. Jesus is not out to destroy everyone who disagrees with us. That is at the heart of the revolutionary kingdom he came to inaugurate. This is a kingdom that operates by rules of grace. Yes, there are enemies of the kingdom who are out to destroy Christians and out to destroy faith. There are. But we are not called to use the weapons of this world in this kind of fight. Jesus calls us to a different kind of kingdom in a day when powerful voices call on us to either own the opposition or to forcefully destroy the opponent. He calls us to go out like sheep among wolves, armed with prayer, love, service, and heart-changing grace. In other words, to do it the hard way. In this kingdom, we love our enemies. Here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus is looking for people of deep and strong faith who live by the values of his kingdom while the kingdoms of the world rage around us. That is so hard to do, but that's what he calls us to do. Rather than getting caught up in the rage, he calls us to serve others in the midst of it. Here's a look at what that may look like. Here's the last clip that we'll show from this He Gets Us campaign. (laughs) 
Notice the tagline there. Jesus' love was never artificial. We're going to use this to end our He Gets Us series. Hopefully what you have found the last 10 weeks has stimulated some of your thinking about Jesus. This final thought also sets us in the direction of where we're headed for the rest of the summer. Next Sunday, we're beginning a new series that we're calling All About Love. We're going to talk about love uh, for the rest of this summer. We are jokingly on staff calling this the Summer of Love. So if you want to go back to 1969 and bring out your tie-dyed T-shirts, they will be welcome around here for the next 10 weeks. But we're going to look at love from all kinds of different angles because what we are discovering is Jesus is calling us to tackle the most difficult problems in the world in a very different way, armed with love, armed with grace, bathed in prayer, can't leave that out. And in order to do that, it takes an unselfish church and it takes a whole lot of stamina to continue to follow Jesus, not all the other voices that call us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the varied looks that you've allowed us to ponder and to probe as we continue to understand Jesus. My short prayer today is that you will strip away any false ideas that we have about him, any non-biblical ideas that we have about him, and that you will continually reshape us as we yield to your Holy Spirit, as we read your scriptures and ponder them, and think deeply about the life of Jesus. Continue the transformation process within us so that you are changing me and changing each one of us. Strip away the selfishness that we so easily can allow to attach to, it, to, to our hearts. Strip away the arrogance and the pride that can become a part of the way that we approach our lives and approach others around us. Make us more gentle. Make us wiser and tougher to think about how we follow you in each and every situation. Again, thank you for allowing us to celebrate today, not just Jesus, but all the dads who are here. We ask that you'll continue to strengthen them and equip them. We thank you for all the good they brought into our lives. And we know that you're not done in changing each one, again, to be more like Jesus. So, Father God, we pray to you in his name, and we offer you these praises. Amen. Oh, wow.